Section 26 of Lives of the Ancient Philosophers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are on the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Lives of the Ancient Philosophers by Francois Fenelon. Crates, contemporary with Polemo, the successor of Xenocrates in the school of Plato, flourished about the 113th Olympiad. One of the most famous disciples of the celebrated Diogenes was Crates, the son of Ascondus, a Theban. His family was very wealthy and highly respectable. Being present one day at the performance of a tragedy in which Telephus, one of the principal characters, abandons all his possessions in order to embrace the Cynic philosophy, he was so struck by the example that he instantly resolved to imitate it, and accordingly sold all his patrimony for which he received above two hundred talents. This sum he placed in the hands of a banker for the future benefit of his children, should they happen only to have capacities of the ordinary level. But should they, on the contrary, possess sufficient elevation of mind to rank themselves with philosophers, he intended the money to be distributed among the citizens of Thebes as an article which philosophers did not require. His friends went to him to entreat him not to persevere, in his determination, but he drove them out of his house, and even ran after them somewhere with a stick. In the summer, Crates wore a thick cloak. In the depth of winter, on the contrary, he was always lightly clad, in order that he might accustom himself to the changes and varieties of the season, without being inconvenienced by them. He boldly entered the residence of all sorts of persons, if he wished to reprimand them for anything in which he had displeased him. He used to run after people of dissolute conduct, and pour out a torrent of abuse on them, in hopes of drawing it out upon himself in return, intending by so doing to render calumny and injustice habitually easy for him to bear. Like the rest of the cynics, he lived austerely, and drank nothing but water. The orator, Metrocles, had ceased to speak in public, on account of being tormented with flatulency, which he could not help betraying in certain audible sounds, which often covered him with confusion in the middle of his harangues. This circumference, simple enough in itself, chagrined him so greatly that he confined himself entirely at home, resolving to pass the remainder of his life in all the forlornness of solitude. Crates heard his situation mentioned, and immediately devouring a great quantity of lupin, in order to fill himself with wind, he went directly afterwards to the house of Metrocles. He entered into conversation with him, and made a number of excellent observations in order to prove to him that where there was no guilt, there ought be no shame that the inconveniences of which he complained were common to all the world. Besides, and I should not be at all surprised, added he, if I were to show you that I am no way exempt from them myself. While he spoke the lupins began to produce the effect he wished. He seemed not in the least disconcerted at it, and Metricles, taking courage from such a good example, and feeling that he annexed too much importance to the cause that had driven him out of society, burst through all the restraints of ceremony, burned the writings of Theophrastus, under whom he had studied, and attached himself ever afterwards to Crates, who soon made him an excellent cynic. In the course of time, Metricles himself became a celebrated teacher of the cynic philosophy, and had many disciples of eminence. But as he advanced in years, disgusted with the infirmities of age, he became weary of his existence, and put a violent end to it by strangling himself. Crates was ugly by nature, and, to render his appearance still more remarkable and hideous, he covered his cloak with sheepskins, so that it was difficult to say at first sight to what species of animal he belonged. 
He was likewise very agile in all kinds of exercises, and when he went into public to join in wrestling and other sports of that kind, the singularity of his figure and habits always excited laughter. This, however, never gave him the smallest vexation. He used only to lift up his hands and exclaim, Patience, Crates, those who laugh at you now will soon find it in their turn to weep, and you will have the pleasure of seeing them envy your enjoyments and lament their own imbecility. He went one day to ask a favor of a master, for one of his scholars, but instead of enforcing his request in the usual manner, by embracing the master's knees, he embraced his thighs. This appeared very extraordinary to the master, who evinced great displeasure at it. Why should you be offended? asked Crates. Do not your thighs belong to you as much as your knees? He used to say that it was impossible to find any human being without fault, but that a few rotten grains did not spoil a fine pomegranate. Crates wished his disciples to be entirely disencumbered from worldly possessions. My learning is my own wealth, he used to say. Everything else I have freely resigned to those who delight in luxury and show. He exhorted his followers to avoid sensual pleasures above all things, because a philosopher ought to think liberty more desirable than any other enjoyment, and voluptuousness was the most tyrannical of all masters. Hunger, said he, gets the better of love, or if that be not sufficiently powerful, time will do the rest, and at any rate one may always find accord and settle the matter by hanging himself. Whenever he began to disclaim against the corrupt manners of his own time, he always launched into the bitterest censures of the folly of mankind, who willingly incurred any expense for things of which they ought to be ashamed, provided they were connected with the gratification of the passions, and yet grudged the smallest cost for anything laudable or profitable. It was Crates who formed the scale of rewards, which has since been so often repeated, to a cook, ten minae, to a physician, a drachma, to a flatterer and a castle-builder, five talents, to a courtesan, a talent, and to a philosopher, an obulus. Being asked what he had learned by this philosophy, he replied, to be contented with vegetables and to live without care or uneasiness. One day, Demetrius Valerius sent him some wine and bread. Crates, indignant at the thought that a philosopher should require wine, sent it back, saying with an air of displeasure, would to heaven we could be supplied with bread also, by fountains, as we are with water. The freedom of manners, which Crates assumed towards everyone, so charmed Hipparchia, the sister of Metrocles, that she refused the most advantageous matches on his account, and even went so far as to threaten her parents that she would kill herself if they did not suffer her to marry him. In vain they endeavoured by every argument in their power to make her change her resolution, and they were forced to have recourse to Crates himself, entreating him to use his influence over her, to divert her from her design. He was not more successful, however, than they had been. At least he rose from his seat, and stripped himself in her presence, in order that she might see his humpback and crooked body, then throwing his staff and wallet upon the ground beside the cloak. Now, said he, that you may not be deceived in your choice of a husband, take notice, that you see me as I am, and all my possessions, consider well what you mean to do, for, if you marry me, I have nothing better to offer you. Hipparchia did not hesitate a moment, but instantly determined to secure Crates at the expense of all she possessed at that time, and all she might hope for at that future period. She never forsook her husband, but went everywhere with him, even into the most crowded meetings. 
One day, being at an entertainment at the house of Lysimachus, she sported the sophism with Theodorus, the impious, who was also one of the guests. If Theodorus do an act for which he is not blamed, neither ought Hipparchia do the same act to be blamed. Theodorus, in striking himself, commits an action which no one has any right to blame him for. Therefore, Hipparchia, in striking Theodorus, enforcing her argument with a slap in the face, does not commit an action that any one has a right to blame her for. Theodorus did not make a direct reply to this logic, but pulling her cloak aside, he called out, Look, here is a woman who has left her needle and thread. True, replied Hipparchia, but you surely will not condemn me for preferring philosophy to such feminine occupations. From this well-assorted marriage of Crates and Hipparchia sprang a son named Poseides, who was educated with great care by both his father and mother in the principles of the cynic philosophy. Alexander one day asked Crates if he would like to see his native city rebuilt. There would be no use in it, he replied, for most likely some other Alexander would come and destroy it again. He used to say that he had no other country than poverty and contempt of grandeur, and that he was a citizen of Phogenes, and consequently exempt from every species of envy. He compared the wealth of the great to trees which sprung up on the mountains and inaccessible rocks, and only served to nourish kites and ravens. In the same manner that the great lavished their riches, only on flatterers and women of loose habits. In fact, he said, a rich man was only a calf surrounded by wolves. Being asked what length of time it might be necessary to study philosophy, he replied, Until you have learned that generals of armies are much the same sort of persons with drivers of asses. Crates, like the rest of the cynics, devoted himself entirely to the study of ethics, paying no attention to any of the other sciences. Towards the close of his life he was bent almost double with the burden of his years. Perceiving his end approaching, he said, as he surveyed himself, Ah, poor humpback, thy load of years is now bringing thee to the grave, that wilt soon see the palace of Pluto. Thus weakness and old age at length terminated his existence. The time when his reputation was at its zenith was about the 113th Olympiad. It was during this period that he flourished at Thebes, and surpassed all the cynics of that time. He was the master of Zeno, the founder of the celebrated sect of Stoics. End of section 26